Now, there's many things that unite us and draw us together, things, a common experience that we've had this week. But I'm thinking of one in particular. It's one that all of us have had, whether you want to admit it or not. Everybody this week will have been angry. Agreed? Oh, yes, and some of you are nodding a little bit more. You know, some of you are, mm-hmm, okay. And I suppose I don't want to ask you what got you angry. I want to ask you why it got you angry. And you need to think about that for a second. Why do we get angry about what we get angry about? I'm going to to state it in a boring way, then illustrate it, so you'll... Oh, yeah, okay? We get angry when stuff we know to be valuable is treated as valueless by other people. So whether it's stuff we've got or people that we know or a reputation that we have... If it gets abused or treated as nothing or treated as cheap, made small, ignored or destroyed, we get angry, don't we? So it could be as simple as, this wouldn't happen. You could imagine this happening in my house, but it wouldn't be from my end. But we'll, we'll. I tidy the kitchen. I wipe all the surfaces. I clean the floor. 3.15 comes round and in come the marauding hordes that are my daughters, having not wiped their feet. They stomp the mud all over the place, they chuck the gear on the tops, they have a drink, lashing it around the place as they go, and I get angry, why? <sighs> They've devalued my efforts. It's hard in the kitchen. That's all purely hypothetical, as I'm sure many of you will realise. But uh, What about if it gets cranked up a little bit? What about this week if you've been angry because you've heard that somebody's made a sly word about you? They've misrepresented you. And your reputation is valuable to you. And you don't like to be thought of something that you're not, or you do want to be thought of something that you are. And so when you hear about it, you bubble. You're angry. Because something that you value has been treated as cheap. How dare they? And the more valuable something is, the more deserving of of recognition or worth the more offensive it is when somebody devalues it. Now we can get that wrong, can't we? Because we, we can sort of be a bit skewed on this. There's things that's really precious and valuable to us that, well, it's because it's attached to us and therefore it's precious, which isn't that important, okay? So, for example, the fact that, you know, with some people, in, you'll, you'll see a husband and a wife rowing over whether or not the toothpaste has been squeezed or rolled. Why? Because we ascribe value to the action of that toothpaste being rolled or squeezed, don't we? If you loved me, then you would roll it instead of squeezing it. You laugh? Oh, I can tell you some of the messages I've had to go over that one. But you get the idea, so sometimes we can be wonky on this, but sometimes it's just a case of the fact that there are things that are valuable that don't get treated as valuable. And like I say, the more deserving of zeal and respect and honour that something is, the greater the offence if it is devalued, cheapened and treated as trash. Get it? So, let's rank the scale. So, some, somebody decides to chuck litter on my front lawn, I mutter to myself. Somebody starts vandalising the Noahs, I don't just mutter, I start pacing and get on the phone and... Rrr, rrr. Somebody bullies my kids, and I start sharpening my machetes things are going to get ugly. Why? Because I take it that a bit of litter on my lawn is not as valuable and as as worthy of 
dealing with as the value of my daughters to me. So the greater the value of something, and the, sorry, the, the greater the, something has a, a value, and when it's treated as nothing, the greater the offence. So what happens if you find something that is of ultimate value, ultimate worth, a source of life and hope, something to build life on, something that brings new life, and it gets treated as nothing, it gets treated as cheap. Would you be angry? Of course you would. Would God be angry? Oh, I hope so. Have you ever had that conversation with somebody and you, go, and you tell them about the fact that there are things in the Bible that God gets angry about? No! I will not believe that God is a God who gets angry. Why, you idiots! A God who doesn't get angry at the stuff I see in my newspapers. A God who doesn't get angry at the way I get treated or the way I treat other people. He's not worthy of worshipping. I don't believe in a God who gets angry. You're an idiot. You need a God who gets angry. Because if you don't, you're saying nothing is of value. The God who made us and loved us said there are things in this world that are of value. And if we'd had time, we'd have looked back into the first half of John chapter 2 where we'd have seen Jesus coming softly, softly and in quietness in a private party showing what he came to do which is keep the party going he came to bring the ultimate celebration and he has the power to do it but in the second half of John chapter 2 here today we see why we need a rescuer because we're going to find that there is something that God is very angry about because there is something of ultimate value the likes of you and me and definitely the people back in the Bible time were treating as cheap. So it would be fair to say in some sense we're walking onto what the Lord says is holy ground. So let's have a look. Let's have a look. Let's dig in straight away. Okay, let's go to verse 12. Here we go. We'll go start to verse 13 actually. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple court, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Okay, actually, I'll keep going. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, the, all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now this is nearly 2,000 years ago. This is in the city of Jerusalem. Generally speaking, 50,000 people in the city. So it's about, what, four times the size of speak generally. But at Passover time, the great celebration set, uh, uh, in their calendar that was centred on the temple, they would have all the Jews from surrounding nations coming as far as Spain, North Africa, would travel in. So, so the whole of um, Jerusalem would swell to about 200,000 people. It was massive. Hubbub. Backwards and forwards. People of different languages with different types of money. All that kind of thing. Milling around. And the focus was the temple. So I want you to think, temple courts, it's 26 acres which is massive, huge. And I want you to think the Trafford Centre on December the 24th or the 26th on Salem's Day. You know the pictures that we always get. Like, get set and Bond Street today was the busiest. You get the idea, okay? It's all there, absolutely chocker. It, and they're all focused on the temple. 
Now we don't have very many temples around today. In fact, there's only a couple that are located in the uh, in the UK, and they're they're not to do with Bible Christianity at all. So you've got like a Mormon temple, or you've got some sort of uh, you've got Muslim mosques, which function a little bit the same, but. Here the temple, you say, Steve, hold on, why are we telling us about this old-fashioned building? Well, it's difficult to overestimate the value that people would put on a temple in ancient times. In fact, universally, the Romans, who weren't known for being that respectful of other people's religions, they made it a capital offence to damage or desecrate any temple. Now, actually, I thought, so, so in other words, you mess, up, you mess with that temple, you die. It's a little bit like... You stand outside Anfield and mock the team, you die. Okay, so it's not that different, but you get the idea. You know, there's certain things to mock. It's viewed as, it's viewed as sacred. You don't touch it. Now, this, why is that? It's because a temple is a place where heaven and earth collided. Just think of that for a second. A bridge and a door to power from above. It was the place where you meant, uh, uh, went if you wanted to meet with God, if you wanted to touch the divine, the place where you would go to is a temple. If you wanted power for your life, if you wanted hope for the future, if you wanted forgiveness for your sins, if you wanted to be able to face life, it was the place where you put your ultimate hope. Now if you notice, if you look across most world religions, it's the same in most world religions. It's almost as if this thing is is written into us that we, we need a place where we, we can go to meet with God. And the Jewish temple was supposed to be in the centre of Jerusalem, was the only one in, in Israel at all. It was the place. It was supposed to be the temple to end all temples. Could anything be more valuable than that? A place of zeal, a place of identity, a place where you would come literally for hundreds of miles by foot to get there so that you can have your hope for life rebuilt. And every temple, and at every temple they knew it was a hard thing to come into the presence of God, so whenever you went to a temple you had to bring a sacrifice, you can't just walk into the presence of the divine, you travel miles, and as I've just said, yeah, all religions except biblical Christianity, and we'll come to that in a minute and find out why, every religion except biblical Christianity has a place or a building where you go, and if you go there, you get blessing, you get blessed. So I told you it was 26 acres, it promised access to God, forgiveness, values were taught, and there would have been a zeal for it. You say, hold on, see, why have you laboured about temples? Because that's not what Jesus found. But when Jesus got there, he walked in, and it wasn't a place of reverence, respect, of meeting God. All he saw was money changers. All he saw was bleating animals. And the funny thing is, is that something that was good has gone wrong here, because if you travelled from Spain to make an offering at the temple, you didn't carry Larry the Lamb under your arm. A bit of a long way to carry Larry the Lamb. So what you did was you took your money, your euros if you like, and you took it all the way to Jerusalem where you'd find somebody who could change it into the kind of money that was acceptable at the temple, which was something called Tyrian silver. And so there used to be a marketplace on the far side of the valley where people could stop off on their way to go and meet with God, so they got the business out of the way so they could get on with the business of meeting with God. But over time, and for practical reasons, they'd shifted it into the temple. So now the temple area had become more Sainsbury's than sanctuary. It had turned into a retail park. You couldn't go there to be meditative, to contemplate things, to pray, because you've got clucking. 
and hens and the ancient version of used car salesmen over here. Get your oxen over here. Three pigeons for a fiver. Come on, girls, get them while they're cheap or whatever it is. All of that nonsense is going. There's poop all over the floor. There's blood and ill animals around. Everywhere you look, it's just yelling at you, this is a marketplace and nothing more. So this is the place where you're supposed to come to do business with God. But God, here in his own temple, well, the people are too busy to make business with God because they're just doing business. Simple as that. So verse 15, we find something happens. So this is Jesus. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what does Jesus do? Answer? He goes all fight club. He goes ballistic. He seems for a minute to lose it. I want you to banish any idea of Jesus being sort of hippie Jesus, long hair, eco-warrior, sort of meek and mild. No, that's not what he does. He makes himself, and we'll find out the, the irony of it in just a second, he makes himself something of a weapon here, but I'll come back to that in a minute. There's no tannoy, there's no orderly, please will you make your way to the nearest exits calmly, but suddenly, and everybody looks around because the amount of impact that it's got would be typical of like a gang of scallies coming in. But that's not what happens. There's Jesus with his little cord made out of reeds, and this little thing, I'll come back to that in a minute. And suddenly, there's tables flying everywhere. The merchants are diving on the floor trying to beat the scallies to catch the coins that have fallen off the table. The animals and sheep are bleating and sort of rushing for the exit. Everything is going off. All the um, merchants, all their sheep, all the money changers get shifted and are pushed out. And all that is left is the people going, what on earth just happened here? Verse 16 gives us a bit of a clue. Verse 16 says this. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. And the thing that we're supposed to spot here is how Jesus actually does it. You see, it says at the start of verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords. You see that? That word there literally means um, reeds. So basically, it's a little bit like scratchy stuff. You, when you think whip, you think, you know, sort of Indiana Jones. <laughs> That'd make everybody run. But the thing he's got is just like a little spiky little stick. But everybody's running. Everybody's fleeing. How on earth has he pulled this off? All he's got is a fluffy, scratchy little bit of string. And it's interesting as well, because there's no riot either. How's this all happened? Because there were soldiers around the temple who were there to keep order and stop militant people stirring up the crowd. If it had been a riot as it happened, they'd have all come in and pulled out the swords and sorted everybody out, but that doesn't happen either. And so, by the time we get to verse 18, the authorities are saying, how on earth have you pulled this off? And who on earth are you to do this? And the Jews, verse 18, demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And so, well, it's not difficult, really. 
He's declaring his authority. And as we've just seen in, in verse 17, there's a quote there from Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house will consume me. Psalm 69 was a messianic psalm where a thousand years earlier, one of Jesus' relatives, great King David, had said, look, I'm going to be overcome with a passion for the glory of my God in the temple. And it's going to get me into a lot of hot water. And Jesus, sorry, David, if you like, was a messianic rescuing figure. And Jesus is just basically standing up and going, hello, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for all these years. When you've done like a photo fit thing, if this is one of the things that God's great rescuing king will do, it's one of these. He will have a zeal for the temple. No, didn't fit with him, didn't fit with him. And here's Jesus and bingo! He's declaring that he is the one that they've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. And he's doing what you'd expect God's rescuing king to do. Sorting out grubby people. That's not all. He's demonstrating his authority as the Messiah. Now I love this in here because... We get this, you know, they say that in verse 18. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority? That kind of, like, seemingly reasonable request comes up on a number of times in John's Gospel. One of them is in John chapter 6, where, John, uh, where Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with, well, sardine sandwiches. They follow him to the other side of the lake. He starts claiming great things about himself and says, what miracle will you do to prove that you are who you say you are? I'm like, hello, sardine sandwiches, 5,000 people fed. And right here, he's like, it's exactly the same thing going on, isn't it? Here's Jesus, who basically has cleared a 26-acre area of all the unwanted, leaving everybody else in the right place, without bringing the Roman soldiers, and he's done it with nothing more than a feather duster. Oh, who are you, by the way? God, you idiot. I'm God. In fact, I've come to my place. In fact, the only reason I've got authority to do it here is because this place is all about me. I am the reason for this place. I've got total authority. And so if they've seen that he has he's sort of made this declaration about who he is and he's demonstrated his authority, it's important here that we get this, that actually he's... He's given us the detail of what it looks like for him to be a Messiah and a rescuer. Why is Jesus so upset? Is it misplaced zeal? Was he having a hissy fit? Had he got out of bed on the wrong side with the cornflakes and the milk on his cornflakes a little bit off that day? No, it's because this is the temple where he is. This is the temple. The place where God makes himself available. Where his worship and sacrifices. Where everything is pointing to the ridiculous lengths that the God of the whole universe would go so that people like you and me and them could come into relationship. It's that place. God is trying to make himself available to the likes of us. God offers his presence at the temple. A presence into your life and mine. Even though we've spent so much of our life playing God and thinking we can get by without it. God offers you and me a way to be right with him. Despite the fact we've had zeal for just about everything in this world except him. God offers us a way to live as we were made to live, seeing and hearing and tasting his values at work in our life, changing us around. How dare you, says Jesus. How dare you have no zeal for what God is providing for you. How dare you treat that as cheap. How dare you abuse it. How dare you. Have you got no idea the cost? 
course the answer is, is that they didn't, did they? It just hadn't sunk in. You can measure something's value, can't you, by how much people are prepared to pay for it. I was gutted last year. When, have you seen that webuyanycar.com thing? Oh dear. Black it is. I went there, I told them the age of my vehicle, I told, you the, told them the registration, I told them what I thought it was worth, I told them what was wrong with it, I told them that I want to sell it. And I was up there thinking, oh, I was worth about two, two and a half, three thousand pounds. We will buy your car off you for £1,145, which if you're struggling mathematically is about half what I thought it was worth. Why? What lessons, spiritual lessons did I take from that? A, never go to webuyanycar.com, but also the fact that things are only have the value that people are prepared to pay to get them. And as Jesus, Jesus looks out into the temple... On Passover, the celebration where they remember that God would pay a price and demand a ransom so that people could be, uh, so that judgment could pass over them and they could go free. On that day, they're forgetting the value of what is on offer and the value of what it will take to achieve what is on offer. But he didn't. And it's worth me stopping at this point and saying, have you forgotten the value? Do you make small the value of what it costs for God to make himself available? For God to make himself available to people who haven't honoured, haven't had zeal, haven't cherished him, haven't ascribed to him his true value and worth. And as Jesus looked at that temple, where there was access being made to God, and as Jesus looked at those animals that were speaking of the need for a sacrifice, and as Jesus looked at that Um, at the Passover and as he looked at people treating them as nothing he saw what he had come to fulfil he saw the promise of the the temple do you know there it says zeal for your house will consume me he's not just saying I will have a commitment that puts everybody else to shame do you know what that word consume means It, it means literally it will eat me up it will burn me up it will break me down it will destroy me Zeal for what is supposed to be happening at this temple will lead to my undoing. And suddenly you lot are saying, I now see the value. Because it did, didn't it? So that all that the temple promised could be achieved, Jesus was undone. He was consumed. He was broken down. Because of my father and my love, um, because of my love for my father and for you, he says, I will be swallowed up, I will be eaten up. God's right anger at your lack of commitment and your lack of zeal and your lack of value given to him, because we're chasing after after other things, God's right anger, that that anger that comes when something is devalued, i.e. him, that right anger falls upon us, well it should do, but it falls upon him. He takes it. And what we have here in this temple account is is a vivid picture that because God says that the thing that is of ultimate value and of ultimate worth is his honor and his movements towards us 
and his presence amongst us and the forgiveness that he provides for anybody who says, no, that is rubbish, that is nonsense, he will clear you out ultimately. And here as Jesus comes to the temple, he's given them one last warning. And as we open the Bible week by week, he's given us a warning saying, look, you need an answer for the fact that you have dishonoured God and cheated cheated him and what he will do for you as cheap. Otherwise, one day you will experience ultimate being cleared out. He will ultimately cleanse. Verse 19, he says, destroy this temple. And the irony is, he was talking about himself, and he was obliterated spiritually and physically, so we might need not be. That's amazing, isn't it? It even sort of ratchets up the value of what the real temple should be, Jesus. And we'll come to that in just a minute. And as he looked out on that crowd there that day, he saw people who just said, that's not worth spit to me. And the sad thing is, in our culture and in our country, we see him look out on speak. And it could be because people haven't heard and understood exactly what it is Jesus is doing for them, but there are plenty of people who say, that ain't worth spit to me. Should God be angry about that? Should we be angry about that? Of course. So what is my authority here? This is my place. It speaks of me and my Father. And I will be slain because I love so much what this temple represents. And I want people to come in and experience me saving them into that. So at this point, I just need to stop briefly and just say, what do you love? What is valuable to you? Oh, I hope it's this. There are so many things every day that clamour to try and claim our attention, don't they? To say, look, this is of ultimate value to me. And you know what they are. I mean, I was sitting in the car, and yesterday, just the amount of time and energy, me and me girls, we were in the car, taking them to swimming and back, and we were talking about some things, and I suddenly had to stop myself in the middle of the conversation, because I realised how excited and, and animated I was getting over something. And I thought, hold on, I've spent all this time today getting animated of this, and it's an okay thing, nothing wrong with that. Nothing long, wrong with being, oh, I'm not going to talk, talk to you about what everything was, but there was something I was getting animated and excited and looking forward to. And I had to stop, because I suddenly realised, hold on, all my kids have heard from me today that thing. And it's alright, but it's not the thing. It's not the thing. It's not Jesus. And for all intents and purposes, on that day, if you'd have asked my kids what was most valuable to, my, to, to their dad, they'd have said that thing. And what do I want them to say at the end of each day was most valuable to their dad and was shown to them to be of supreme value? Jesus. I'm really bad at it. I'm really bad at it. And I'm just like, I'm just a market trader, aren't I? I'm just a money changer. I need what Jesus brings. I need him to be consumed for me, because otherwise I'm going to get it. And that's why when I hear about how Jesus died on a cross, it sort of sets my soul free a bit. Do you understand that? I have hope. Because though I don't deserve it, he's done it for me. So as we finish, I just want to try and wrap this up in three things. I want to say, hold on, if this Jesus, not any other Jesus that you may have made up in your mind, but if this Jesus, this Jesus who says this is the most precious thing and this is why I've come and this is who I am, if you bring him into the centre of your life, what will it look like?
What will it look like to have him come in and say, this is my place, you're my place, I've come for you, so that you can touch the divine, so that you can meet? Well, three very quick things. First of all, we will see that Jesus is the one and only place where God and mankind can meet. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? They're so two-dimensional and they're thinking, aren't they? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. It was him. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, we, everybody has the pursuit of some sort of temple. We just do. We're always trying to touch something a little bit bigger than us. There's that sense within each one of us of a cosmic longing. The moment at how much stuff I get, or how, many, how many places I go out, or how many successes I have, it doesn't quite hit the spot because we know we're supposed to be able to touch the divine, meet with our God, and anything else won't fulfill that or fill it with joy. And this... I mean, this is great because it means our pursuit is over. Any temple in the world was never supposed to be the end point. Every temple in the world was always supposed to point to something. Some people don't realise it. There are plenty of people who say, plenty of religions say, trot off the temple. And they haven't even woken up to the fact that actually any physical building or place of pilgrimage is only just a faint echo of the real deal because we don't need to go to a stone building or a sacred place, we need to go to a person, we need to go to God. So Jesus here is effectively saying, watch out, my temple is different to every other temple. How's that Lord Jesus? Well, in every other temple, or any other place you visit, or any other pilgrimage, you bring a sacrifice, you bring an offering, you pay the debt, you make yourself worthy, you travel the distance, you bridge the gap. But in my temple, I am the sacrifice. I pay the price. I am the priest. I am the place. Because I am God come to meet you. He's blowing every other temple up. Do you get that? He's saying to every other idea that you can meet with God in a physical building or go to a place to do it. He's saying, I am the meeting place. And so I suppose other religious leaders from other religions say, build a temple. But Jesus says, I am the temple. Come to me. I make all of the temples, all of the religious places obsolete. I am the temple to end all temples. You want to touch the divine? Come to me. Bring your heart to me. Bring your life to me. Because when you meet me, you meet with the true and living God. That's the first thing that happens when you welcome Jesus into your life. He is the one and the only meeting place between God and man. That's not all. The second thing that happens doesn't end there. It gets even more uncomfortable. The second thing that happens is he drives out the rubbish. Just like in that temple court. I suppose, uh, you know, when we've, we're having, you know, we've got this Noah's Ark property over the road, which is great, but um, imagine if before we purchased it, I walked in, and everything's going on as normal, and um, just quite happily, I start walking over to one corner and start moving the sofas around, and then move over, hmm, not sure about that mirror, I think I'll take that down, I'm going to stick it over there, 
and uh, off that pool table, quick rub it off. Carpet, smells of urine, quick, get it up, start ripping the stuff out. You'd think the people who own the Noahs would have even stopped to ask me what I was doing. Oh, now I'd have had a jolly good kick in, would have been out of my ear. Why? That's not my, it wasn't my place, it's not my place, I don't get to mess with it, I'm not the owner, what right have I got? I don't get to decide where the furniture goes. But the second that we as a church bought that place, what did we start doing? Ripping it out. What is it, 110 tonnes of rubbish so far? Out came the furniture, out came the bar, ship them tasteless mirrors, that poo-stained carpet, off you go. We're getting rid of the rubbish, this place is getting renovated, big style baby, we're going to make it fit for purpose, we're going to make it clean, we're going to make it a place of hope, not dinginess. We're going to change it. And when Jesus comes into a life, he comes in to move the furniture. Why? Well, okay, put it this way. When Jesus walks into the temple and starts moving the furniture, it's a picture of what he does. Why? Because he's the owner. He's the owner of our life if we put ourselves in his hand, if we, uh, if we brought him into the centre of our life. He comes into your life, and he won't come in as a guest, so don't ask him to, because he's too big for that. He won't come in as a life coach who will just be there to give you a bit of guidance along the way. He won't come in and merely come when he's called. Well, I think I'll have Jesus on Sunday, thank you very much, not the rest of the time. I think I'll have Jesus when it comes to thinking about how I do my money, but not about how I do my relationship. I think I'll have Jesus when it comes to uh, what I do on a Sunday morning, but not on a Saturday night. I don't, no, you don't get that one. He won't come in as a dealer. He will simply give you a little bit of a shot when you're having a hard time. He won't come, under, um, come in under any of those terms. He will only come in as the owner. Why? Because according to the Bible, if you're one of his people, he has bought you. You are his. He owns you and has every right over you. He died for you. And you can bank on him rearranging the furniture. I tell you, he's into whole life renovation. And we need this, don't we? Any of us, given the track record of our ability to know what is good for us and make, um, make good choices, know we're rubbish at doing that. And actually, it's like, come on in, Jesus, quick. Get the renovation underway. I need you to change me. There's all kinds of places where I invest my life, invest my time, look for hope, and they keep wrecking me. Come in. Don't just move the furniture. Rip out a few walls. Rebuild me. Make me new. So firstly, when Jesus comes into the centre of your life from here, we find that you find that he is the one place you go to meet with God. He will come in. You let him come in to rebuild your life. And then suddenly, finally, you start to become verse 17. Look down at verse 17. His disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. You see, we are a mass of misplaced zeal and commitments. We see it by the way, just the things we get angry about. We get angry about all of the most weird things, but they seem so right to us, but actually other people look in and say, what were you thinking? We're, a, we're a, 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 just a mass of, of placing our energy and putting our value on all kinds of stuff, some of which is deserving, but we give it too much. Some stuff is valuable and we don't give it any attention at all. And Jesus comes in and he says, Right, when you have met me, the one who was so zealous that he would lay down every other thing of value so that, so that you can know him, when that happens, it starts to rearrange your order of what is valuable. You start to get a zeal for him. And a zeal for what he values. He shows you what is valuable. 
So when I became a believer, I, there were things that I just stopped overnight. I said, hold on, that, it, it's ugly in his sight. There were things in my life that, hold on, over a period of time, I was so stubborn that he had to wrestle them out of my hands or put his finger on them. And he's so, ooh, doing that. And suddenly you get a change and you're like, oh yeah. And you get zealous for his work and you want more of it going on in your life. This isn't something that comes from religion, which is duty. I must do it. Suddenly, you actually want to be different. You want to value what he values. You love forgiveness. You love the possibility of seeing people meet with God. It starts to consume you and eat you up. Suddenly, you start spending part of your summer in another part of the country telling people about Jesus. Well, you stay up later at night and you go to a prayer meeting because you're consumed with the fact that there are people out there who are lost and need to hear of him. When when, when you hear the name of Jesus spoken with joy, it lifts you. When you hear the name and somebody says, oh God, it sort of gets you in your guts and it saddens you. you. You love him. He's valuable to you. Why? Because you've let Jesus into the centre of your life and you're not the same. You become a little version of him. Oh, he's the saviour, he's the Lord, he's God. But something of zeal for what he says is of value starts to consume you and eat you up. And it's beautiful, isn't it? You start coming regularly on a Sunday morning and what's all that about? You want to hear more of God's word open. What's going on there? When you know you've let him down, it grieves you. What's happening there? And you'll even start to sing the sort of songs that we're about to sing in a minute. Who is there like you? And who else would give their life for me, even suffering in my place? And who could repay you? All of creation looks to you, and you provide for all that you have made. So I'm lifting up my hands, I'm lifting up my voice, I'm lifting up my name, and in your grace I rest, for your love has has come to me and set me free. How do you get that? How can you sing that? Well, you look at the zeal he had for you, for me. And you let it wash over you again, and again, and again. I'm going to pray. While I'm praying, I wonder if the musicians would come up and we can sing that through now. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you quietly now. And we certainly find things valuable, Lord. We we agree with that. But we recognise as well that there are things of ultimate value that we have not treasured ultimately. And that is the place where we get to meet with you, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he came as a rescuer to bring us back, to give us what our hearts have always been searching for. We praise you, O Lord, that he had a zeal that may not have been polite, but it was pure. We thank you that his zeal for us consumed him, ate him up. And we thank you that because of that zeal we are free to meet with you though our sins should have stopped us. We praise you, O Lord, that we get to sing and get changed and that he is the temple to end all temples and he blows away all kinds of myths and religions and nonsense and he calls us to come straight to him. And so we pray we would come, come ready to be changed and ready to have zeal for him. Please, Lord, as we continue to work through this gospel, help us to see how it is that Jesus is the Christ and how it is that by believing in him we get life. And we've seen it today. Lord, make us a zealous people, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
stand together as we sing. If you play the introduction, we'll stand when you're ready. That's great. Let's stand together.